What is up, everybody? Welcome back to TMT Time. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein. Today, I'm back with a special guest who is an a published author and influencer. His name is Alan Gannett, the author of The Creative Curve. Alan, welcome to the TMT Time. Thanks for having me. TMT Time, by the way, sounds very much like a, like a I don't know, like a wrestling death match or something. But I feel like it probably stands for Technology, media, telecom. What does yeah, TMT stand yeah. for? That's exactly what it stands for. Uh, but uh, I actually okay. like Oof. the the connotation of the deathmatch more. I don't know. We've yeah, been no, strong deathmatch vibes. I, I really like you. I, I'm glad that you weighed in on that because I've actually considered <laughs> like, eh, if you Google TMT time, it comes up with Turkmenistan time zone. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think that, I mean, that, you know, sounds, sounds like a good alternative. Yeah, to, <laughs> to you know. time. Yeah. No, um, all right. Alan, what, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself uh, for those of the, them that don't know who you are. Sure. So I am a author and uh, tech entrepreneur turned investor. So I wrote a book called The Creative Curve, which is this look at the science of consumer preference and its interaction with creativity and why if we understand why consumers like certain things, we can also understand why creativity is something you can actually learn and get better at. And then I ran for seven years, a venture backed marketing analytics SaaS company. Um, and then nowadays I do a lot of um, pre-seed and seed investing in early stage tech companies, both on the sort of consumer side, building within the framework for my book and also on the B2B side, just based on my experience as a SaaS entrepreneur. So if I may ask, how did you get in? Have you been an entrepreneurial person your whole life? How'd you get into it? Is, and data analytics for what? Marketing, I assume? I, I've always been an autonomy freak. Like I just really don't do well, you know, listening to other people, which, you know, has like positive and negative uh, impacts on my life. Um, but, you know, I worked, I was a head of marketing for a startup and I just found that like, you know, the CEO I work for is like a dear friend, someone I really like, um, and I just was like, I can't do this. Like, I just, I got too frustrated. And so it was sort of more out of necessity than anything else. I was like, oh, this is like the one career path that is sort of societally allowed for people like me. Startups, right? Just building something. For, and so you built a company and what do you have an exit? And now you are on the other side, helping people, you know, build companies themselves. Yeah. I've been doing angel investing for, you know, a long, actually a pretty long time now. Um, but now I just sort of, that's more full part of my sort of like day to day. So I've invested in about 65 companies, um, pretty active as an investor in terms of like being helpful. Um, and, you know, I, I tend to invest very, very, very early stage. So I think like two people in a PowerPoint is sort of my sweet spot. So like seed round, if not a pre -seed. No, not even pre-seed. Yeah. yeah, no, seed, is, seed feels late. <laughs> All right, so the the creative curve uh, is a book that I've actually seen and start, have started reading now, and others have referred it to me. Actually, someone on this podcast actually mentioned it. So, Alan, what is the creative curve? Uh, what does it mean, and how how does sort of the philosophy behind it help people in an, in an entrepreneurial fashion? Yeah, great question. So basically, the creative curve. Um, itself is my sort of branding and marketing term um, for this finding in psychology called the inverted U-shaped relationship between preference and familiarity, which obviously is not a good book title. And basically it's this finding that it turns out 
that there's a lot of patterns to what ideas and concepts and product consumers tend to take hold of. And those products tend to be ones that are a balance of the familiar and the novel. They have one foot in the old and one foot in the new. They're not actually radically innovative. That's a big misconception. And you can see this all around, right? You think about movies like, right? Star Wars was a Western in space. Um, you look at, you know, the iPad, the iPad was actually very incremental innovation, right? The iPad was an iPhone without a phone. The iPhone was an iPod with a phone. Like the iPod was a better MP3 player. So you see this over and over when we start to look at it where, you know, in music, for example, we tend to see this where, you know, a lot of music is actually sort of incrementally moving forward. We don't have these usually radical jumps in sort of musical styles. Um, the Beatles are a great example of this. They slowly became more psychedelic and went back to sort of their pop roots later in their career. And so basically, if you map out how familiar something is on the x-axis with how much people like it on the y-axis, you find this sort of upside down U where at first people are like, oh, this is too new. Then it sort of reaches this nice balance of something feels you know, familiar enough to be safe, but still novel enough to be interesting. And then eventually ideas become overexposed. We all sort of know this from fashion and ideas fall out of favor. And so it's the downward slope of the U. And so that is the creative curve, which is my sort of, you know, better, better name for a concept from psychology. All right. So you mentioned fashion. I, I think you are into fashion and I bet that's why you mentioned it. I've been following you on some of the social media platforms and you seem to know a lot about it. Um, why is that an example that you use for, you know, this, you know, they go out of fashion, so to speak, at the end of the useful life? Yeah, I mean, I think the critical thing to understand with fashion is that, you know, there is an entire industry of people who have consistently for the last 30 years been able to create things that you are going to like. And that is a pretty weird thing to wrap your head around because it seems sort of like, mm, how could that be true? Well, Right. The reality is like the fashion houses create literally like a year and a half, two years ahead. They're working on their seasons. Right. So they're having to think about what are people 18 months from now going to think is trendy. And what that tells you is there's a whole science to how people think about this. And so in the book, what I do is actually break down the elements of what successful creatives do in order to nail this science. And I interviewed 25 living creative greats. So I interviewed folks like Ted Sarandos, who's now co-CEO of Netflix. I interviewed David Rubenstein, you know, the co-founder of Carlyle Group. I interviewed um, you know, folks like Nina Jacobson, the legendary Hollywood producer. I interviewed Alexis Ohanian, if we're talking about startups. Like, I interviewed this really eclectic set of people. What you find is that across industries, whether you're interviewing you know, a Broadway um, songwriter or you're interviewing you know, a startup mogul, what you find is that the things they do to understand consumer taste and preference are actually very similar. And fashion, I think, is such a wonderful example of that because it's very visual. It's something we all interact with. And we can all sort of wrap our heads around the idea that things come into style and they fall out of style. So did you, when you interviewed these folks, was there a common theme? Because when I think about, I'm a lawyer. So when I think about creativity, it's mostly in, in legal writing, but most lawyers I wouldn't put us in the creative class, if you will. Did you pick up on any themes with these people? Or is it people are, are inherently creative or they can become creative? What, what did you gleam out of the interviews in that regard? Well, one thing I thought was interesting, I mean, 
you know, there's, there's a lot, but one sort of maybe broad thing I thought was interesting was that the more successful someone was, actually the more they thought that creativity was something that could be learned. And so like, let's unpack that. Well, that's kind of weird, right? Because like, you would think that people who have reached the highest echelon of success might feel like, well, no, there's some like natural ability, but actually what I think it is, the people who've reached the highest level of success were able to sort of step out and build a thought process and system behind their work. And since that's how they reach the pinnacles of success, they realize that's something other people can do too. Versus I think a lot of people who maybe are one hit wonders or have some sort of moderate amounts of success, they're not necessarily exactly sure how they got there and they're not able to repeat it. And so that's why you find this really fascinating thing where the people who have the most sort of genius sort of type of creative success, we can talk all about the concept of genius, which is sort of an absurd concept on its face, but basically those people are the ones who also think that creativity is something you can nurture and learn and get better. And I thought that was very exciting and sort of motivating um, for any of us who are trying to try. Right. So are, are, is the book a useful tool to help others along the path of becoming more creative in, in the vein of it's something that you think um, or you've learned that can be a skill that's taught? Yeah. So basically, you know, what I do in the book is the first half of the book is sort of busting a lot of the myths around creativity. So we have a lot of myths in Western culture about how creativity works. And then the second half of the book is I explain these four key things that um, creatives do, these four patterns that all of the people I interviewed did that helped enable their ability to reach high creative heights. And so the second half, the first half of the book is more sort of almost, you can think like sort of a fun sort of look at the history of creativity and the scientific research behind creativity. And the second half of the book is much more of a, is much more of a sort of practical guide to how you can do this too. All right. So let's, let's uh, bust the myth that lawyers are not creative or, or business people or accountants or numbers people are not creative. Um, what are the, what are the lessons from the second half of the book? Um, if we make that assumption that helps those of us who don't, um, you know, may have bought into the myth well, prior of all, to this. I think, I think there's like a difference, right, between utility and creativity, right? So there's lots of things that we do that have high utility, but aren't creative. So creativity by definition is the ability to create something that's both um, valuable and novel. That's the, the academic definition. And value is interesting because it's not actually just utility. Value is a social construct. So value, you have to sort of ascribe as a group that, oh, this thing is valuable. So what do I mean by that? You could create as a lawyer a new way of doing some sort of contract, but if no one ever uses it, no one adopts it, no one actually deems it valuable, it's not valuable. Value is a circular sort of concept, which I think blows a lot of people's minds and is why you see a lot of people like misunderstanding things like cryptocurrencies because they're like, well, it's not worth anything. Well, it turns out if enough people say it's worth something, it's worth something. And so um, you think then you think with lawyers, you look at something like what Y Combinator's done over the years with a lot of their standardizing of invest stocks, so like the SAFE, for example, Simple Agreement for Future Equity was a major create, creative moment for sort of people in this specific type of startup law is a creative solution to a problem that existed. Now, if you're just using that, you're not necessarily engaging creativity, but you do have utility. So I think a lot of times we forget that usually to advance in careers that are sort of professional you know, careers, whether that's accounting or lawyer, any of these things, actually the people who are most successful tend to be the ones who use their creativity 
and tend to be the ones who gain reputation. Because I think what's kind of interesting is that ironically enough in careers that are sort of normatively considered not creative, that's actually where creativity is the most asymmetric upside for those who practice it because there's much less competition, right? If you're like in design and you're, you do something creative, it's like, well, duh, right? Like, of course you did. That's your um, job. So I think lawyers and accountants, yeah, can like do lots of interesting creative things. Obviously creative accounting, you know, has some funny sides to it. <laughs> but, some downsides to it. Yeah, yeah downsides. some downsides to it. Yeah, yeah. Well, what you're saying is, is me doing this podcast is yeah. a differentiator. Yeah, Turkmenistan time. It's our favorite law podcast. Exactly. <laughs> when we're not even really talking about law. All right. So what are the, what are the next steps sort of, I, I got, just got to this point in the book. Um, so I want to sneak preview sort of like the laws of creativity how they can be taught and, and what they are sort of like drilled down on them. Yeah. There's a book length answer, right? So like me try and give some that are, I think are maybe very practical. Um, I mean, the first one that I think is really useful and I think lawyers do this already is um, one thing you find is that world-class creatives uh, engage in a ton of consumption. What I mean by that is they're not like going on Twitter and learning a little bit about a lot of things but they learn a lot about a little. They go very, very deep on a narrow topic. So like jazz musicians will listen to every single jazz record. Like that's a very common sort of story to hear. Like every novelist I talk to reads a lot of books, right? And the reason why is that because you're fundamentally creating something for an audience, like that's the point of creativity is to create something for an audience. I think anyone who tells you you're creating for yourself isn't actually really engaging in a creative craft there because like so much of creativity is about the audience reaction, the audience perception of value. And so in order to be able to create something for an audience, you have to understand where they're coming from on that familiarity novelty spectrum. As a result, you have to be a super intense consumer because you have to know what's out there. What are people seeing? What people like? What they dislike? And so consumption is hugely important. Now, obviously lawyers you know, read lots and lots of documents. So I think you know, they probably feel like they do a lot of consumption, but what I think is important is really going for sort of like primary source materials, right? So um, the thing I talk about is that if you, for example, worked in cryptocurrencies, right? And you wanted to come up with more creative solutions to problems, the thing would not to go and read, you know, Coindesk or whatever, but is to go and read, you know, original academic papers from math PhDs who study cryptography. Like that's actually where you would go from a consumption perspective. So similarly with lawyers, if you want to go and understand the stuff, it's really about going and consuming case law, going and seeing what's the newest things that are happening. What are interesting contracts that people are doing? What is the sort of, where is that bleeding edge of new and how can I consume as much of it as possible? So consumption, I think is a very practical one for a lot of people. The second one I'll say that's very practical is, um, and I think lawyers can you know either do a really good job of this or a really bad job of this is you find that all creatives uh, engage in what I call creative community. So we have this myth in the West that creativity is a solo act, which is just garbage, right? And so like, if you think yeah, about- like Steve Jobs, he created Apple on his own. Yeah, by his own. And it's like, in reality, he had Steve Wozniak. He actually raised venture capital super early. He had multiple employees. Yeah, Jimmy in the first Irvine. Six yeah. And it's like Elon Musk, you know, took his many millions of dollars from his like, you know, ad tech company, to like hire lots of people, like, you know, so it's like, there isn't this idea that these people are creating everything themselves is basically a marketing PR entertainment sort of story and narrative that marketing professionals craft because it helps get people excited about companies. Like that's the point. 
But we can't mistake that for how creativity really works. Like if you actually look at someone like a Steve Jobs or Elon Musk or any of these people, it's like they're deeply integrated with other engineers, other builders, other creatives. They surround those people around them. They're very self-aware about their weaknesses and they bring other people in who can fill those weaknesses. Jobs is such a great example because Wozniak and him are so obviously sort of yin and yang. Later, it was obviously Jimmy Iovine and Tim Cook, but he was always bringing people into his orbit who filled his weaknesses. So often we either act alone when we try and be creative or almost even worse is we like co-found things with people who are very similar to us, right? So people who we gel with, who we sort of feel like, oh, like we're very similar. But that's a terrible reason to do something with someone else because like you already have those skills, right? It's about finding someone who one plus one equals three. And so I think for lawyers, you know, obviously a lot of legal work is so you do it on a team. Um, and But obviously also you can, I think, take a very sort of like narrow sort of perspective to that versus engaging with lawyers outside of your firm, sort of meeting other people, building that group. And there's a lot of different facets to creative communities, um, not just sort of actual collaboration, but even things like friendly competition is actually an important part of a creative, creative ecosystem, right? So knowing other people at other firms who are doing interesting work, who you're friendly with, but like kind of want to like keep up with, like that's actually a useful motivating force, especially as an adult where we don't have like a parent telling us like, go do finger painting. Um, so I think those two things, consumption, <laughs> do better, and, do better on your test next yeah, week. Exactly. There's, I think consum yeah. consumption and creative communities are really good examples of this. I actually think this is almost like a subtle plug for diversity too, because, you know, at least oh, yeah, in, sure. in my work, like on the teams, this is a, a reason why you want diversity of thought, which, uh, you know, is gets you to the right answer better. And actually I think does beget more creativity in solving, you know, complex legal problems. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. Um, you know, and I think what you see is all the studies that basically show that um, there's a term for it. What is it? Uh, it's not perspective diversity. There's some, there's some sort of nice term for it, but basically, yeah, it's sort of diversity of perspectives is like a huge driver of team performance over the long term. And there's actually some really interesting studies that NYU did that looked at things, for example, around like the most successful um, producing teams. Um, for movies were either teams where the members were both both sort of sort of part of the establishment and the fringe at the same time, right? So they sort of balance those those two worlds, or they had some members from the establishment and some members of the fringe, right? So like institutional Hollywood producer, very edgy up and coming director, like those were highly successful too. And so I think what you find generally is that a the people who are very successful sort of get it. And that's why you see like a lot of people who are at very high degrees of success will like engage with people who are younger than them, who will engage with new industries, who are sort of take a curiosity posture and a learning posture because they've learned over their careers that what they don't understand is often actually what's going to be next. And they have to be open to that. All right. So uh, in that vein, you've mentioned cryptocurrency twice. I know you're doing a new book and I, I've seen some of your posts on social media about NFTs. Is this like an area that you're currently interested in and investing or is it like a, a personal interest in, in your, uh, in your no, the, owner? The, the new, the book I'm working on is not about like crypto stuff at all. No, I'm just, I, I'm just a big, I was a crypto skeptic for a long time. And like one of my sort of COVID realizations, I was wrong. Um, just because I finally had time to really like dig in and learn. And I just realized like, I was super incorrect and I was wrong. And so I've like spent the last year, like 
you know, trying to sort of catch up on, you know, what is it, eight years, nine years of like development of like probably the next thing that's the most important since the internet. So, yeah. And then well, we've had an NFT focus on TMC time, Turkmenistan time here. Uh, <laughs> so I'll give that an extra plug. Uh, Alan, I want to be respectful for, of your time. And I know you have a short time frame with us today. So uh, as an author who is of an advice book, basically, you know, a nonfiction book of, of almost self-help, what are you reading right now um, that's been helping you? Yeah, I actually, so I actually, you know, I tend to follow, you know, this sort of same pattern. So like right now I'm reading a ton of academic papers. I'm interviewing a lot of academics. Um, you know, I'm working on this sort of to be announced uh, new project and, you know, I'm basically consuming tons of primary research and that's how I like learn and come up with sort of new ideas. Um, and, you know, if I was sort of, you know, working on wanting to develop sort of more skills as a writer, I would be reading lots of other sort of narrative nonfiction books. So it's really about sort of aiming that consumption canon towards whatever the sort of current sort of, I don't know, threat, I don't know, or activity is. And right now it's, it's, you know, a lot of academic research and a lot of academic papers. All right. Well, that sounds very dry to me, sort of like the <laughs> legal stuff that I read. So I'm not going to ask you to give any recommendations to our <laughs> listeners. Uh, no offense, but I, it sounds to me like you're going very deep in a, an academic manner. Um, and hopefully this next uh, book that you put out is as big of a success as this one is uh, creative curve was, uh, what else do you do outside of the academic reading? You, you would Netflix binger, you go outside. I think you live in New York city. Like yeah, what, are, what are you um, doing? I mean, I'd say like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty busy. So it's, you know, me and the sort of mischievous Corgi. Um, yeah. you know, you do talk a lot about the Corgi. So what's the Corgi's yeah. name? His name's Maven. He's very, he's very, he's very mischievous, eight years old. He still thinks he's a puppy. Like all the things that come along with that are all true. Um, and so, yeah, I'm a new New Yorker. I moved here like a year and a half ago. And so I'm still sort of exploring and learning about the city and enjoying, enjoying that. Uh, my podcast listeners know that I actually have three dogs, one of whom, uh, thinks that Corgis are his enemy. He's a a 10 pound I get, rescue. I, get that. I, get that. Uh, I actually call him the mysterious Mr. Bobby, even though his name is Waldo. Um, and one <laughs> of the reasons he's so mysterious is because he always barks at corgis. There's a couple of my neighborhood that walk by and he barks at him every single time. I don't know what it is. I mean, you know, corgis have big personalities. He's just, he's trying to keep up. I, I don't know. All right, Alan, thank <laughs> you so much for joining us on TMT time. It was great to get to know you a little bit and hear about the creative curve. We're uh, all looking forward to seeing what exciting things come out of your end in the future. Cool. Thanks. Bye.